Dr. Fauci is just like Mohammed Atta on 9-11. Shut up, obey me, you'll be fine. Hey, don't think I'm going to make an outrageous claim like that and not back it up. This is a special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and the Deep State and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 362 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show for Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this really different kind of talk show, we're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com. Click on the button that says Become a Patron. And we really appreciate all of our patrons. They make it possible for us to do what we do here. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure you check out our new conservative sports podcast, Red Pill Sports, with my friend Donnie Copeland. It drops Tuesday evenings at 11 p.m. Central. Now again... Dr. Anthony Fauci, in my humble opinion, is like Mohammed Atta on 9-11. They both basically said the same thing. Shut up. Obey me. No funny business. You'll be fine. But not only is it about the desire to control and, yes, kill other people, but there was also so much deceit involved. And we will talk about this on today's episode of the Doc Washburn Show. Now, you know, it has often been said history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme pretty often. So Fauci, Burks, and the government and public health care systems handling of COVID also reminds me of the infamous Tuskegee experiment. More on that coming up. Now, PBS, the public broadcasting system, has a TV series called American Masters. It has been airing on public television all over America since 1986. It consists of biographies on enduring writers, musicians, visual and performing artists, dramatists, filmmakers, and those who left an indelible impression on the cultural landscape of the United States. For episode 281 of American Masters on PBS, they just rolled out something called Tony, A Year in the Life of Dr. Anthony Fauci. Now, the part I have seen so far was filmed back in June of 2021. And we have a clip from this TV show, which is basically hero worship of Dr. Fauci. Now, to be able to continue the hero worship of this fraud, this psychopath, after having watched this episode of PBS's 
American masters dedicated to Fauci. One must answer the age-old question, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Now we begin with the PBS American Masters episode with Fauci putting on a mask in a limo. Now he's been riding for several miles in a car with several other guys without a mask on. But Fauci if, is nothing if not a performer, and it is time to put his game face on, so it's time to put his max mask on. Next, Fauci discusses the low-income black neighborhood that he and Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser are about to visit. Now, obviously, you'll be able to tell that he is speaking through a mask even though he's still in the limo, he's been riding in unmasked for miles with several other guys. Now I think would be a good time to share with you what Julie Kelly over at American Greatness says about Dr. Fauci's foray into the Anacostia neighborhood of Washington, D.C. She said out there on Twitter, Once upon a time, a white government official going door to door in a poor black community to mislead them into taking an experimental shot that doesn't work but has unknown side effects would be a scandal of major proportions. And she's right. It would be. It should be. And again, it reminds one of the Tuskegee experiment. But more on that in a moment. So this is Anacostia historic African-American neighborhood. In New York, they have neighborhoods. Here, they have wards. So this is Ward 8. Uh, It's the typical social determinants of health where they don't get good medical care. So, like I said, you can tell he's speaking through a mask there, right? Okay, wait. Wait a minute. He He just said they don't get good medical care? But Barack Obama, Joe Biden, and Nancy Pelosi all promised us that Obamacare was going to guarantee good medical care for low-income people of color. What happened? Here's more. They have a high degree of HIV, high degree of COVID-19, the lowest level of vaccination. They're sort of the disenfranchised group that we got to reach out to. So the mayor is now with me going to congratulate the people who are going to go out into the community to try and get people vaccinated. Still talking through his mask to some guys in a limo that he's been driving with without a mask. Now think about this for a moment. They aren't going to go door to door to explain to low-income black folks how they can receive good medical care through Obamacare. They aren't going to go door-to-door to to warn people about the dangers of HIV and AIDS. They're not going to do any of that. No, 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 no. They're going door-to-door to to push the clot shot. Next, Fauci gets out of the limo, takes his mask off, and gets very close to the mayor. Again, it's all 
just a show. Hi, Madam May. Nice to see you. A real pleasure. Thank you. For Great to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good to be here with you. It's going to be fun today. Yeah, yes, it is. And already, I think they tell me they have more people um, that have been this morning than they usually have at this site all day. Really? Yes. Fantastic. Now, remember, these are audio clips from the American Masters show on PBS. Okay, next, Fauci puts his mask back on to go meet some people in what looks like a high school gym, including a young woman who has just gotten the clot shot. She is so overcome with emotion at meeting her hero, Anthony Fauci, that she momentarily confuses him with the creator of the universe. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. All right, let's take a oh my God. Oh my God, Dr. Fauci. There seems to be some confusion there. So next, Dr. Fauci gives a quick pep talk to community influencers who have gathered around him on what looks looks like a, an asphalt basketball court. He has once again taken off his mask. Again, it's all a show. Well, good morning, everybody. I want to give a special thank you to our fellow Washingtonian, uh, Dr. Tony Fauci. Let's hear it for Dr. Fauci. Thank you very much, Madam Mayor. It's really a great pleasure to be here in this ward. I've been a resident of the district for 50 years. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I love this city. So that's one of the reasons why I'm here. I'd like to believe people listen to me, but some don't. That really bugs him. He is a megalomaniac. He's an authoritarian. He wants to control people's lives. This is really getting under his skin that some people are not listening to him. <laughs> but when you have people who are part of the community, you know, the community core, the trusted messengers, those are the ones they listen to. So that's the reason why we need you to get out there and tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell your loved ones why it's so important to get vaccinated. So once again, thank you so much for all you do. We look forward to working with you. Thank you. Amazing. And they accept everything he's saying at face value. You know, we hear a lot about social media influencers these days, but influencers have been around since time immemorial, for forever. Margaret Sanger, for instance, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was a racist. She wanted black folks to have fewer babies, so she paid off black ministers to push birth control. And she said, we don't ever want them to figure out that we're trying to exterminate the black race. That's what Fauci's mission in the poor black neighborhood of Anacostia, Washington, D.C., reminds me of. Oh, you, you, you haven't heard that birth rates have plummeted among vaccinated folks? Yeah, they have. You hadn't heard that miscarriage rates among vaccinated pregnant women have skyrocketed? They have. Gee, I wonder why people would be so hesitant to get the clot shot. 
Next, Fauci gets very close to an elderly, unvaccinated woman on her front porch without wearing a mask to try to talk her into getting the jab. Again, it's all for show. Do you think it hurts or, or what is it? it, it no, it does other things to, to me. I just yeah. pass out. How old are you? I'm older than you, so don't feel badly. Don't feel oh, good. I'm 80. Me too. Oh, good. <laughs> me too. I'm 82. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why you might want to reconsider. Yeah, no matter what. No matter what. He doesn't need a reason. He just wants everybody to get the clot shot. He wants everybody to get the jab. No matter what. So wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. There's no consistency, no rhyme or reason to this guy. As far as he's concerned, He is a law unto himself. Now, remember, in our last episode, we explained how Dick Cheney actually set Fauci up to be in charge of approving funding of all federal government health care projects. So Fauci operated with no accountability, no oversight for many years. Next, Fauci and Mayor Bowser speak privately about what is needed to persuade people to get with the program and accept the clot shot. People aren't really opposed. Yeah, I know. They do need a They push, need a little push. A push and a drag. Oh, a push and a drag, huh? I see. Fauci says people need a little push to get vaccinated. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser says they actually need a push and a drag, and Fauci certainly doesn't disagree. Fauci is definitely down with coercion, arm twisting, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Speaking of which, Mayor Bowser has concerns about what they call vaccine hesitancy in some of the red states. What are we going to do about those other states? Oh, my God. They're going to keep the outbreak smoldering in the country. It's so crazy. I mean, they're not doing it because they say they don't want to do it. They're Republicans. They don't like to be told what to do. And we got to break that, you know, unpack that. Oh. Oh, I see. Fauci who's always said he is apolitical, just not into politics, is condemning Republicans for not liking to be told what to do. Really? Oh, yeah. This little megalomaniac just told the mayor of Washington, D.C. that things would be so much better in this country if he just had the power to force people to obey him. Kind of reminds me of Mohammed Atta, hijacker of American Airlines Flight 11 on September 11, 2001. Now, I'm actually about to play for you audio of what Mohammed Atta was trying to say 23 minutes before he flew that Boeing 767 into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. The problem was the idiot had things backwards. So he thought he was on the intercom to the passengers of the plane, and instead he was broadcasting these words to air traffic control, which is how they figured out that the plane 
have been hijacked. Here's And this is kind of scratchy audio, so I'll tell you what he said if it doesn't come out clearly. We have some planes that stay quiet and be okay. We're to the airport. Okay. Well, Mohammed Atta, 911 hijacker slash pilot. In case you didn't understand it, he said, we have some planes, just stay quiet, and you'll be okay. We're returning to the airport. Now, that was a bald-faced lie told by a man who was bound and determined to control other people and take them to their deaths. Just do what I tell you to do, and you'll be fine. I'm going to tell you something, and I don't care who gets upset by this. The message of Muhammad Atta is the message of Anthony Fauci. Muhammad Atta knew he was lying. Anthony Fauci knows he's lying. Next, Fauci and Mayor Bowser confront a young mother with young children who tells them she wants to wait until her children are old enough to be vaccinated before she gets the jab. Now, remember, this is this is June 2021 almost two years ago. This is relatively early on, so vaccines were not yet approved for little kids. But Fauci and Mayor Bowser will not accept no for an answer, no matter what the reason is. They are on a mission. They are determined to see succeed. So they lie to this young, unsuspecting mother. How you guys doing with vaccine? Oh, okay. I'm not even trying to get. I'm waiting for them to be able to. Oh, you should get it first. Okay, that way you won't give it to them. I thought I thought I would give it to them if I get it. No, no, not at all. In fact, we got to get you vaccinated so that if you were to get infected, you could pass it on to them. So you're actually protecting your family by getting it vaccinated. Well, I heard that it doesn't um, cure it and it doesn't. Um, stop you from getting it. No. So on the very, very, very rare chance that you do get it, even if you're vaccinated, it's a very, you don't even feel sick. It's like you don't even know you got infected. It's very, very good at protecting you. Just the Anacostia, so get up okay. there. Okay. All right, Thank see you later. Yes, that's right. You heard it. Several lies in less than a minute. Now, do you remember Dr. Deborah Burks? from President Trump's White House COVID Task Force. She wrote in her book that they all knew that the vaccines weren't going to work. So why is Tony Fauci lying to these vulnerable people? Answer, follow the money. Now, the next person they come across in the Anacostia neighborhood of Washington, D.C., This guy's a real OG, and he is ready for them. The people in America are not settled with the information that's been given to us right now. So I'm not going to be lining up taking a shot on a vaccination for something that wasn't clear in the first place. And then you all create a shot in miraculous time. It takes years to create vaccinations. Well, it it used to take years. You know how how many years we're invested in this this approach? About 20 years of science to get us to be able to do it. Oh, 20 years, huh? Well, now, I know you worked on gain-of-function research for almost 20 years. 
So you mean to tell me the development of the COVID vaccine was part and parcel of that process too? That whole time? There's a woman named Janine Small. She is the president of International Developed Markets at Pfizer. She has been an executive with Pfizer International for many years. She started with the company in the late 80s. She testified before the European Parliament back in October 2022 that Pfizer did not test their vaccine to see if it was actually effective to protect people against COVID before they rolled it out because they didn't have time. She actually laughed when she was asked if they had tested it for effectiveness. She actually responded, no, no, we were moving at the speed of science. Don't take my word for it. I'm going to play you the audio. A guy named Rob Rose, R-O-O-S, a member of the European Parliament from the Netherlands, asked this Pfizer executive a very pointed question. Was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping humanization before um, it entered the market? No. Uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. This is outrageous. You know, I tried to tell some people in my church about that, and they just, it's like I was speaking Greek. People can't imagine that something like that could possibly be true. A lot of people who are conservative, Christian folks, they agree with you, they're going to vote the way you vote, but they have no idea. They can't imagine that our government has done this to us and many governments. So here's the follow-up. From this Rob Rose guy, delegate to the European Union Parliament out of the Netherlands. This is scandalous. Millions of people worldwide felt forced to get vaccinated because of the myth that you do it for others. Now this turned out to be a cheap lie. This should be exposed. Please share this video. It's all over YouTube. I can't believe they hadn't taken it down. You can look it up and share it. Rob Rose, R-O-O-S. Coming up, the parallels between our government's COVID response and the Tuskegee experiment. More parallels between Anthony Fauci and Mohammed Atta. And Fauci's about to admit something that, in hindsight, I'll bet he wishes he hadn't admitted. And that is coming up next. Look, if you tried to buy a car recently, you realize you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. 
People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including the freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com, pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase your vehicle online if you have any questions. One of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying, car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live. In the continental U.S., redriverauto.com. You will be glad you did. Now, I want to tell you about the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines? Well, the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center might be able to help you. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. Now, I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life. I had migraines year-round. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away. It's never come back. The migraines are gone for good. Again, if you're suffering from sinus conditions, allergies, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, even migraines, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped me, they've helped my wife, they've helped so many people we know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number again for your free consultation 501-279-2009. If you're outside Central Arkansas, just go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, click on the tab that says Find a Doctor Near You, and I sure hope you can. Now, as you probably know by now, our friend Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of their life. And he's done it again, introducing MyPillow 2.0. Now, my t- my pillow 2.0 has a brand-new temperature-regulating technology that keeps you comfortable throughout the night. MyPillow 2.0's new fabric dissipates heat and humidity to create a cooling sensation to maintain a cooler surface temperature. This new fabric technology helps regulate your body temperature through the night by creating a lower surface temperature for more restful night's sleep. You know, your core body temperature plays a big role in how well you sleep. MyPillow 2.0 was developed to provide a cool surface. It's engineered for comfort. MyPillow 2.0 is available in four loft levels. It's machine washable and dryable. 
and there's a 10-year warranty, 60-day money-back guarantee. As a special introductory offer for my listeners, when you buy your new MyPillow 2.0, you get a second one free just by using promo code DWS. Now, Mike also created the best bed sheets ever. They look great. They feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for me, which is crucial for my busy schedule. My wife and I just love sleeping on our Giza Dreams sheets. Now, Mike is offering the best deal on his Giza Dreams sheets. Buy a set of Giza sheets, get one free. The first night you sleep on these sheets, you'll never want to sleep on anything else again. Mike is making a special offer for my listeners. Buy a set of Giza Dream sheets and get one free just by using promo code DWS. MyPillow also has blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles like plush, waffle, or gossamer. Get huge discounts on blankets, duvets, quilts, down comforters, and so much more. Use that promo code DWS, and you'll get huge discounts on all MyPillow bedding, including MyPillow 2.0 and Giza Dream Sheets. Buy one, get one free. Now, I'm wearing my new My Slippers moccasins. I had no idea slippers could feel this good. Right now, save on My Slippers, slip-ons and moccasins, close-out sale price at just $25 by using promo code DWS. Not only that, Mike is having the biggest closeout sale ever on his sandals for just nineteen ninety eight. What makes my slippers different is Mike's exclusive four layer design that you're not going to find in any other slippers. My slippers patented layers make them ultra comfortable, extremely durable, and they help reduce stress on your feet. Wear them anytime, anywhere. Just use promo code DWS. Now remember that. Promo code does not stand for washed-up Democrat politician Debbie Wasserman Schultz. No, no, no. It stands for Doc Washburn Show. MyPillow.com and MyStore.com where Mike sells all kinds of stuff. Quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices. So please order now. Just use promo code DWS. All right, let me ask you this. If Dr. Deborah Burks knows the vaccines don't work, as she admitted in her book a few months ago, and the Pfizer executive admitted we didn't even take the time to test them. Why does Anthony Fauci lie so consistently and so convincingly? Well, remember when Senator Rand Paul asked Dr. Fauci how much money he receives in royalties from the vaccine makers, Fauci responded that he didn't have to tell him. So follow the money. Now, Fauci is about to betray himself. He is about to admit something that there is no good explanation for. And nine months is definitely not the enough for nobody to be taking no vaccination that you all came up with. The only yeah. reason I'm talking to you right now, as close as we are, is that I've been vaccinated. Right. But if it allows thousands of people like you don't get vaccinated, you're going to let this virus continue to percolate in this country and in this Something world. Something like the common flu then, right? And, and it's like, not it's like much more serious than the flu. Well, the flu kills a lot of people. Yeah. Too. You know how many people died of the flu the last year? I mean, not this year virtually none but the previous year okay now wait a minute wait a minute hold up hold up did you did you catch this 
Do you know how many people died of the flu the last year? I mean, not this year, virtually none, but the previous year. Okay, check it out. He's betraying himself. He's admitting something that he shouldn't. Fauci just admitted in June of 2021, halfway through the year, that virtually no people had died from the flu that year. Now, why is that? Because they counted all flu deaths as COVID deaths. There was a strong financial incentive for healthcare facilities, hospitals and otherwise, to chalk up as many deaths as they possibly could to COVID. Do you remember that? About twenty to 30,000. You know how many people have died from COVID-19 in the United States? 600,000 Americans. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Again, hold up. First of all, Fauci just admitted twenty to 30,000 people died from the flu in America in 2020, but no one died from the flu yet halfway through 2021. So is the old joke true? COVID cured the flu? Next, Dr. Deborah Burks announced from the podium at the White House in April 2020 that they had decided that if someone had tested positive for COVID and that person died, they were going to count it as dying from COVID regardless of what actually killed him. He could have had lung cancer, ALS, cirrhosis of the liver, diabetes, and Alzheimer's. Whoops! The decedent tested positive for COVID, so we're just going to chalk his death up to COVID. The CDC admitted around the same time that of the then 180,000 COVID deaths in the USA, only about 6% of them actually died from COVID and COVID alone. 94% of the rest of them had at least two and a half other conditions that contributed to their death. Guess what? Fauci knows this. So he knows he's lying when he says in June 2021, the video of which shows up on PBS's American Masters, which just rolled out within the last 48 hours, he knows he's lying when he says that 600,000 people had died from COVID by June of 2021. He knows he's lying. Well, the, the number that you all giving that died, that's, that's once again, that's you all's number. You got pass. Yeah, definitely. Because when, right. when you start talking about paying people to get vaccinated, when you start talking about incentivizing things to get people vaccinated, there's something else going on with that. Yeah, something else, something it, else I, going it on is something that. going on. Yeah, something else. You're right. But I'm glad millions of people like me and most everybody here didn't get an incentive. You know what their incentive was? Protecting their health and protecting the city. Well, but that's, I, well, I won't keep doing anymore. It's okay because my, 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 my incentive, y'all campaign, is about fear. It's about inciting fear in people. You all attack people with fear. That's what this pandemic is. It's a fear. It's fear, this pandemic. That's all it is. Amen, brother. That's all it is. Well, by this time, Fauci had disengaged. 
you start hitting a little fascist like Anthony Fauci with the truth, and he just walks away. Now, a year later, the completely vaccinated Fauci got COVID, and he reported in the media that he felt really poorly during his bout with COVID, giving the lie to what he had just told the black folks in D.C., that by some minuscule chance that you actually got COVID after you got vaccinated, you wouldn't even be able to tell. It'd be so mild. A year later, he got it, and he was saying it wasn't mild for him. He's lying to these people. Mayor Bowser also came down with COVID a few months after the PBS camera crew tailed them in the Anacostia neighborhood of Washington, D.C. Okay, I mentioned the Tuskegee experiment earlier. Now I need to tell you about it and why I think there's a connection here and why I think history is rhyming. The Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male, informally referred to as the Tuskegee experiment or the Tuskegee syphilis study, was a study conducted between 1932 and 1972 by the United States Public Health Service and, yes, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC on a group of nearly 400 African-American men with syphilis. The purpose of the study was to observe the effects of the disease when untreated, though certainly by the end of the study, medical advancements meant it was entirely treatable. The men were not informed of the nature of the experiment, and more than 100 of them died as a result. But wait, 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 wait. There's more. Let me dig a little deeper on this. In 1932, the Public Health Service working with the Tuskegee Institute, a private, historically black, land-grant university in Tuskegee, Alabama, began a study to record the natural history of syphilis in hopes of justifying treatment programs for blacks. At least that was their excuse. Again, it was titled The Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. The study initially involved 600 black men, 399 of them with syphilis, 201 who did not have the disease. The study was conducted without the benefit of patients' informed consent. In other words, they're guinea pigs. They're lab rats. Human beings treated like animals. They're never told. They're never told. Researchers told the men they were being treated for what they called bad blood. A local term that part of Alabama that referred to several ailments, including syphilis, anemia, fatigue. In truth, they did not receive the proper treatment needed to cure their illness. In exchange for taking part in the study, the men received free medical care, such as it was, free meals, and burial insurance. Although originally projected to last Just six months in 1932, the study actually went on for 40 years, 1932-1972. Now, penicillin, which can be used to treat syphilis, was discovered by the 1940s. However, the study continued, and treatment was never given to these black men. 
Because of this, the Tuskegee experiment has been called arguably the most infamous biomedical research study in U.S. history, and indeed it was, until the last three years when the government and the public health care system decided to experiment on all of us. Now, there was a remarkable article over at Ars Technica last year entitled 50 Years On, The Lessons of the Tuskegee Syphilis Study Still Reverberate. And in that article over at Ars Technica were these thought-provoking words. A couple of doctors did express concerns about the ethics of the study in 1955 and 1965, but their warnings were ignored. In December 1965, a social worker born in Czechoslovakia named Peter Buxton joined what was by then the CDC to interview patients with venereal disease. He soon wrote to the CDC expressing grave moral concerns about the Tuskegee study. When the CDC invited him to a meeting in Atlanta to discuss the matter, Buxton was berated by CDC physician John Charles Cutler, who, Buxton said, clearly thought I was a lunatic. Undeterred, Buxton again wrote to the CDC in November 1968, almost three years later. This time the director, David Sensor, established a blue ribbon panel the following February. So three months later, February 1969, to discuss the ethical issues. When the panel decided that the men should not be treated, they deemed the study was too important to science. The men should not be treated for their venereal disease. Dr. Buxton contacted the press. The Washington Star newspaper broke the story on July 25, 1972. I wonder why the Washington Post wasn't interested and it landed on the front page of the New York Times the next day, July 26, 1972. The public outcry led an ad hoc advisory panel to investigate further, and the study was finally terminated in October 1972, after 40 years. By then, 28 of the subjects had died from syphilis. 100 had died from related complications. 40 of the subjects' wives had been infected, and again, they weren't treated either, and 19 children had been born with congenital syphilis. The article mentions that a new paper published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine came out last year, and it argues that federal regulation is not enough to to prevent similar unethical research. Ain't that the truth? The paper's author is a gentleman named Martin Tobin. Now, Tobin said some horrific medical experiments have been conducted in secret, but this is not the case with the Tuskegee study. Across 36 years, the CDC published 15 articles detailing the ravages of untreated, fatal syphilis in high-visibility medical journals. For doctors who did not read an entire article, 
titles such as The Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis, the 30th Year of Observation, should have been sufficient to arouse suspicion, yet not one doctor, not one, published any criticism of the experiment. Can you believe this? One of the more nuanced aspects, largely relegated to footnotes in much of the writings to date on the Tuskegee experiment, is that the chair of the 1972 ad hoc advisory panel, a man named Broadus Butler, was black himself. Yet he abstained from concurring with reports, findings, and even accused the other panel members of becoming advocates who had lost their objectivity, according to Tobin. Two panel members in particular, Ron Brown, general counsel of the National Urban League at the time and later U.S. Secretary of Commerce under Bill Clinton, and Vernal Cave, director of the Bureau of Venereal Disease Control for the New York City Health Department, sharply criticized Butler's chairmanship, insisting that he had engineered a government whitewash. So a lot of people knew about this. A lot of doctors knew about this. For decades, they put out articles in medical journals all over the world, all over the USA. But no one was willing to tell the victims and their families. No one was willing to give them penicillin. Nineteen babies born with congenital syphilis. Now, you may be thinking, that's horrible. But what is the parallel to COVID? Well, let me, let me take a swing of that one for you. There was a lot of money available to healthcare facilities including hospitals, which came up with patients who tested positive for COVID, a lot of money available for each patient given remdesivir, which killed an awful lot of people, a lot of money available for healthcare facilities, which put people on ventilators, which killed the overwhelming majority of those patients, and a lot of money available to healthcare facilities for each patient death attributed to COVID, and so many People knew exactly what was going on. And the overwhelming majority of them just went along to get along. Now, speaking of remdesivir, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. would like a word about Fauci and remdesivir. Now, remember... His voice sounds unusual because he has a medical condition. He's healthy as an ox, except his larynx has a medical condition. So stick with him here. In our country, um, all of the things that liberals care about, which is kind of equal distribution of wealth, were thrown, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of progress thrown out the window. It was a $3.9 trillion, trillion dollar shift in wealth 
from the poor and middle class in our country to the super rich. We created 500 new billionaires during the lockdowns. Um, it, it was a war on the poor and a war on children. Blacks suffered 3.6 times the death rate as whites. Um, and, you know, there's this other country, by the way, our country had the strictest adherence to all of these protocols, including the use of remdesivir, which is enormously toxic and completely, utterly inefficacious. But, you know, it was Tony Fauci's pet drug. But we were the only ones that had it for a year. And we, in our country, we have 4.2% of the global population. We had about 18%, of the, almost 20% of the global deaths from COVID. You checked that? He said remdesivir was enormously toxic, but it was Tony Fauci's pet drug. Okay, I got less than a minute left. How's that a success story? We, we did everything we were supposed to do in this country more than any other country except for Australia. And we have the highest body count of any country in the world. The, the death rate in our country was 3,000 people dead from COVID per million population. In Nigeria, which has a 1% vaccination rate, and where the entire population basically is on hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin for malaria and river blindness, they had a death rate of 14 people per million population. So they didn't even have a pandemic. Yeah. These were the countries that Tony Fauci said, oh, there's going to be mayhem in the developing world. Well, guess what? There was no vaccinations available in the developing world, and there was no COVID deaths. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. out there just spitting some truth out, man. But so many people knew what was going on, but for some reason they weren't willing to speak up. And you absolutely positively were not allowed to give people medicines which could actually save people's lives like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. We'll probably never know how many people have been murdered by healthcare professionals in our hospitals. But what we do know, especially back in 2020, you got COVID, they just tell you, well, go home and come back if you get worse. Wouldn't give you anything. Wouldn't give you anything. Why? Because you're not getting emergency use authorization to be able to roll those vaccines out, Operation Warp Speed, if you admit that something else might work. That's what that was all about. Now, while you think about that, I would like to play for you Attorney Tom Renz speaking to Dr. Adrian Smith. How did you or did they know that there were, that there were people hastening death? I know that because I spoke to one of the nurses one morning when I was when I was opening one morning on the floor, I work on the unit and he was totally upset because the night nurse didn't do her job. And I was like, and I questioned him. I said, why, why are you so mad? I mean, what do you mean she didn't do her job? And he basically said that she didn't go up on the morphine drip and take care of business. Now he has to do it and he has to take care of it. So I, I, at that point, yeah, at that point, I didn't know that nurses did that. I, ha- I did have a concern about the morphine drip, the old palliative care, because it's there was a lot of freedom there. And with COVID being um, with COVID being in the hospital and aff- affecting visitation policies and family not being there, it created a concern. But when he 
when I encountered this um, situation with this nurse, it made me even more vigilant to, to protect the patient because this is happening. Um, and there has to be safety for our patients. They have to know when they come to a hospital, they're going to be protected and cared for. And they're, and well, they're and paying their family members knowing that they are going to be taken care of. Well, and I want everybody to understand. So we actually have, and you have audio recordings of, of at least one nurse talking about the fact that they knew they were killing patients. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And so we, we actually have audio recordings. And, folks, I want you to hear what I'm saying here. My client asked for a religious accommodation that would basically exempt her from having to deal with blanket orders to murder people. That's my words, not hers. The hospital ignored her, but then said no. Let's think about that. Now, we've been hearing rumors and all sorts of stuff for quite some time that the hospitals were denying ivermectin, denying hydroxychloroquine, denying early treatment, denying this, denying that. But we now have a firsthand witness who was ignored and ostracized for requesting that hospitals take steps to not hasten death. Or at least that she not be directly required to do that in a blanket way. Folks, I'm going to tell you that it's my belief that this was coordinated on a very high level from a lot of places. And uh, I think we have some real questions to ask ourselves. When we have a, a doctor of pharmacy with the clinical experience that Adrini has, who's saying to them, hey, what you're doing is hastening death, and they basically blow it off. There's an issue here, right? There's an issue. It sure is. That's uh, attorney Tom Rentz and his client, Dr. Adrian Smith. So, you know, I've been harping on Fauci because of the brand new PBS show, Lionizing Him, American Masters. But never forget, Dr. Deborah Burks was actually in charge of the White House's COVID response. A lot of people don't realize that. They think Fauci was. If this was a surprise to you and you want to know the full story and... Here's a little hint. President Trump was not the person who appointed her to be in charge of the White House's COVID response. She was appointed White House COVID response director by a guy in our national security apparatus who had spent many years in China, okay? And I believe she was doing the bidding of the Chinese Communist Party in her response to covid on behalf of the White House. If you want to know how Dr. Deborah Burks got to be White House COVID response director and was not put there by Trump, you need to listen to episodes 194 and 196 of the Doc Washburn Show. So, are Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks more like Mohammed Atta? telling everybody on the plane to shut up and follow his orders? Or was Fauci and Burks's whole operation more reminiscent of the CDC's Tuskegee experiment? Why not both? I'll tell you what. I got a lot more 
about how they, how they pull the wool over our eyes, and I think pull the wool over Trump's eyes too in March of 2020. That's all coming up. Plus, we're going to drill down on some reasons that the government's COVID fiasco should remind us of the Tuskegee experiment by going to a new article by the great Daniel Horowitz over the conservative review entitled They Knew. FOIA document shows government anticipated mass vaccine injuries, then observed them from day one. I don't know if anybody else is telling you about these things. But I do know one thing. It's my duty. It's my responsibility. God didn't open this door for me to just, for me just to soft pedal everything. That's not what we're about here on the Doc Washburn Show. So that is all coming up in mere moments. Now, I don't know if you heard this, but AT&T recently lost a lot of money, billions, on Wall Street after their satellite outfit, DirecTV, decided to delete Newsmax off their satellite operation. Now, if you want to drop AT&T, or if you're tired of paying money to any of the big liberal cell phone carriers... I have the perfect solution for you. Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. And Patriot Mobile guarantees your coverage. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. I know I'm saving a lot of money with Patriot Mobile. Now, when you switch over to Patriot Mobile, You're shifting your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. When you become a Patriot Mobile member, your dollars are helping to fund our God-given right to freedom. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Switching is easy. Just do what I did. Go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. You know, the great Ronald Reagan once said, inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. Have you thought about the benefits of investing in precious metals? Here are five profound benefits. Number one, investing in precious metals is a hedge against inflation. Number two, it's a great way to diversify your portfolio. Number three, asset liquidity. Number four, precious metals tend to be a store of value. That means precious metals are an asset, commodity, or currency that maintain their value without depreciating over the long haul. And last but not least, number five, Precious metals can be a hedge against geopolitical uncertainty. 
and the struggling U.S. dollar. So we're honored to join forces with Beverly Hills Precious Metals and its owner, Andrew Sorcini. Andrew has been involved in gold and silver for over 40 years. Andrew Sorcini and his team at Beverly Hills Precious Metals know the gold and silver business inside and out. After many years in the markets and collecting precious metals privately, Andrew opened Beverly Hills Precious Metals in 2010 to bring precious metals to the homes of everyday American citizens. We found out about Andrew Sorcini and Beverly Hills Precious Metals from General Michael Flynn, and we are so glad we did. Andrew was a frequent guest on conservative podcasts. Beverly Hills Precious Metals is our gold buyer of choice. To learn more about Andrew and his team, go to bh-pm.com. The BH stands for Beverly Hills. The PM stands for Precious Metals. bh-pm.com. If you can't remember that, just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals. No matter what search engine you use, it's the first thing that comes up. Make sure you ask about the General Mike Flynn Silver Coin when you contact them. And let them know Doc Washburn sent you. We're honored to be able to tell you about Beverly Hills Precious Metals in an effort to help you in your attempts to protect your family's finances, wealth, and investments. bh-pm.com or Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals and tell them Doc Washburn sent you. Now, I've been talking about how the world's going crazy with supply chain issues, record-setting inflation, and sky-high gas prices, and woke corporations that stand against everything we believe in. We all know how the big box stores were allowed to stay open all during the pandemic, while so many little guys, small business owners, regular people, were forced to close. The wealthiest people on earth became better off, while mom and pop businesses suffered. The question is, what are we willing to do about it? What can we do about it? How can our voices be heard? Well, we can make a difference by voting with our dollars. Why continue shopping at big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now, finally, we can shop Factory Direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. Switch to America.com is helping Americans walk away from the big box conglomerates. That's why Switch to America was created with regular folks like you and me in mind. One of the best ways to get around this crazy inflation is to shop with family-owned companies that put their customers first rather than shareholders and corporate executives. A lot of Patreon influencers have come on board. I'm inviting you to join with fellow patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. We are done with a woke globalist operation against humanity. Each of us can take market share away from these businesses that have enjoyed unfair advantages. We can choose to help each other by shopping family-owned, made in America. The website is switchtoamerica.com. Join with over 2 million monthly shoppers that have already made the switch. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. And now an even more exciting addition is fresh American-raised beef. Raised in the Montana mountains near Yellowstone, this beef is known as Never Ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. SwitchToAmerica.com is dedicated 
to offering family-owned alternatives for items we buy on a regular basis. Just go to switchtoamerica.com. When it asks how you heard about us, click on my name, Doc Washburn, plug in your info, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. Switchtoamerica.com. All right, let's take a look at this article from the Conservative Review entitled, They Knew FOIA Document Shows Government Anticipated Mass Vaccine Injuries Then Observed Them From Day One. This is by the great Daniel Horowitz, and it just dropped March 22nd, 2023. He says, nobody disagrees at this point that there is a plethora of excess deaths and a dearth of births, a trend that should be the number one alarming public policy issue. Yet when any of us suggest that the gene therapy ubiquitously given to the world right around the time of the jump in these numbers might be responsible, people look at us like we're from Mars. However, it turns out, based on newly released FOIA documents from the CDC that our government knew about and even anticipated massive reports of injuries from these shots from day one. Throughout the past two years, the government and media have concocted a conspiracy theory that somehow the CDC's own VAERS reporting, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, is scammed with fraud by people who have nothing better to do with their lives but spend hours filling out fraudulent vaccine injury reports. They pretend it's a sort of ex post facto anomaly that nobody expected and has no credibility in their eyes. Except, as Hebrew University professor Josh Guchkow reveals, not only did the CDC know about the vaccine injuries blowing up the VAERS system at record levels, even before the general public had access to them, but the CDC contracted with defense contractor General Dynamics to handle the database in anticipation of record use. Then, when the vaccines were released, the CDC had to up the contract to account for even more entries yet showed no moral qualms about continuing with the campaign without disclosing these revelations to the public. Professor Gutzkow, who has secured numerous FOIA documents both in the U.S. and Israel throughout COVID, posted almost 70 pages of FOIA documents and contracts from General Dynamics Information Technology to the CDC's Immunization Safety Office. Thanks to his work, we already know from the previously FOIA documents that the CDC's 9.45 million contract with General Dynamics in August 2020 stated that officials anticipated 1,000 adverse event reports per day, with 40% of being serious, yet like a cold serial killer soullessly counting his casualty lists, the CDC was completely fine with going through with this campaign as if it were the price that had to be paid to worship the spirit of the age, the modern-day Moloch. However, this document shows that as early as January 15, 2021, 
when most people still could have avoided these shots, the CDC was aware of record-setting reports that crushed even the agency's initial cold-hearted, morbid expectations. And he's got the screenshot of the FOIA document. He says, as you can see from page 8 of the PDF, General Dynamics warned the CDC that VAERS have blown through the expected 1,000 cases per day and even reached a level of, of above 4,500 a day to the point that General Dynamics could not process all the data. Mind you, they were never concerned with the human toll, just the logistics of the contract labor. They predicted a need for reforecasting of staffing needs to process all these reports. Already in December 2020, when the shots were only available for select people like doctors, there were over 19,000 reports and close to 344,000 website visits. It's hard to see how this was not organic from people genuinely in pain because there was no organized campaign in the United States to inform people of theirs at the time. Harwood says here, I myself, who obsessively focused on this, hadn't even heard about it until two months later. By February 15th, 2021, General Dynamics reported a continued record-setting pace of reports and website visits to the point that workers had to expand their VAERS ID reports to allow for seven digits instead of just six. In April 2021, officials reported that they had to hire an additional 200 staffers to deal with a backlog and continue to process 25,000 reports per week, well beyond the threshold they originally had contracted for. As eligibility for the shots expanded for all age groups, they continue to process over 30,000 injury reports a week, yet the CDC never said a word about it. Shades of Tuskegee, huh? Not only did officials not take the products off the market, they began mandating them over late summer 2021. Oh, how well I know with some mandates that remain in place to this very day. It's nearly impossible to astroturf these sorts of injury reports. Clearly, our government saw how organic they were and how they coincided perfectly with the uptake of the vaccine. Indeed, the FDA had access to the infamous Pfizer document in February 2021 before almost any younger adult was vaccinated showing that the shot killed over 1,200 people and was associated with over 1,400 categories of serious maladies that were chronicled in a list eight pages long. Now, keep in mind that after the government observed all these adverse events and after officials knew about the 7.7% clinical injury rate from the CDC's own V-SAFE program, perfectly corroborating the VAERS data, They accelerated the approval of these shots for children and then the mandates for everyone. Emails released via FOIA show that in July 2021, when the shots should have been canceled, Peter Marks, head of the FDA's Center for Biologics, Evaluation, and Research, pressured Marion Gruber, then head of the Office of Vaccines Research and Review, to truncate the already accelerated timeline to fully approve the Comirnaty shot, which is still not commercially available in the U.S. a year and a half later. 
And then he has a screenshot, a copy of the July 19th email response from Marion Gruber, in which she says, I pointed out the very important regulatory issues that still need to be settled by the time we take action on the BLA, including the pediatric plan, which is becoming increasingly complex in light of increasing evidence of association of this vaccine and development of myocarditis, especially in young males. They knew. They knew. She also says, you emphasize your interest in licensing this vaccine as soon as possible, a goal we agree with. We, too, are concerned about the rising COVID-19 cases in the U.S. However, our concern is that a review that is hyper-accelerated beyond the already very rapid September 15th target date and, as a consequence, may be less thorough than our typical review seems more likely to undermine confidence in the vaccine and, indeed, in FDA's credibility than to increase it. So a week after the infamous August 23rd approval, which triggered the mandates, Gruber resigned from the agency in protest. But notice how even Gruber couched her reticence to approve this thing in terms of not undermining confidence in the vaccine rather than expressing actual concern that it was already killing and maiming people in droves. We're at the point where, at a minimum, the government doesn't care how many people die from this experimentation. Dr. Tom Merritt, who was part of the Oxford University team, who developed the AstraZeneca vaccine, best summed up the sentiment of the biomedical state toward the people when he admitted that those injured by the gene therapy were collateral damage to the bigger scheme. Oh, no, 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 he's not through. He added, some tragically died, a number had their lives changed forever. They believed in vaccines, now they don't. And Daniel Horowitz winds up the article saying it's all a matter of what the bigger scheme really is. Ain't that the truth? By the way, he has a a series of articles over conservativereview.com. This one's entitled Horowitz. They knew FOIA document shows government anticipated mass vaccine injuries, then observed them from day one. And it just dropped March 22nd, 2023 at conservativereview.com. They knew. And yet, people like Fauci going out there, man, trying to push this on unsuspecting people. By the way, Fortune Magazine has a new article out on the PBS tribute to Fauci. It says in one remarkable sequence in the documentary, The PBS director presses Fauci on whether he might have handled things differently looking back, like asking Americans to adopt masks sooner or ordering quarantines faster. Fauci's response, maybe I should have done that. Yeah, I was wrong. Now, this is stunning. It's breathtaking. Masks don't work. Fauci has even said that publicly. Quarantining healthy people, which is what our leaders insisted we do, makes healthy people sick. The idiot with PBS television may not realize it, but Anthony Fauci sure does. Now, remember the secret to being a good con man, though. Never give up the con. By the way, this interaction, again, reminds one of the Mohammed Atta comparison. You will shut up. You will obey. You will be just fine. There's been so much information that has come out recently about huge amounts of tax dollars that the feds have been spending to try to censor us that I just don't have time to get into on this episode. 
but they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to censor us. I'm probably going to need to call the next episode something like they're trying to shut you up because they're definitely trying to do exactly that, and I need to do a whole episode on that. It will blow your mind when I tell you what I've got on that. Now, next, we're going to hear the sound of Fauci at home watching Dementia Joe Biden be inaugurated on January 20th, 2021, and Fauci is so relieved that the authoritarians are taking over. Today is uh, a combination of so many different things. It's kind of a, a, a diffusion of an incredible amount of pent-up tension and holding back of, of despair. Holding back of despair. Really? But wait, there's more. Fauci next actually pretends to express concern for what people went through. The stress of the fact that you're responsible for something that's killing a lot of people. 400,000 individual people. People were seeing their loved ones dying without even being able to be near them. So, once he says he's responsible for the deaths of so many people, once he talks about being responsible, well, no, he doesn't admit that. Here's the question. Who was responsible for all those people who died alone? Who was responsible for their loved ones not being allowed to be with them? If it wasn't Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, then who was it? Now, you know... Television can be a very powerful medium. So as Dr. Fauci acts like he is overcome with emotion, as he pretends to tear up over all these people who died alone while watching Garth Brooks sing Amazing Grace, we're supposed to empathize with whatever emotions Fauci is feeling, and plenty of people do. But we don't. We don't empathize with whatever fake emotions Fauci is trying to make us think he's feeling. Certainly don't empathize with Garth Brooks singing Amazing Grace about the salvation found only in the Lord Jesus Christ at the inauguration of a man who is dead set against everything that the Christian religion stands for. No, none of that. We're going to talk about what really happened. Just having passed the three-year anniversary of 15 days of slow the spread, we're going to talk about what really happened. I don't think anybody 
has handled it better than the folks over at the Brownstone Institute. Jeffrey A. Tucker and the crew over there. So, let's start with the article the Brownstone Institute did. It's brownstone.org, Jeffrey A. Tucker, October 2nd, 2022, the 70 seconds that shook the world. On March 16, 2020, following a long weekend of negotiations and deals about the coronavirus, Donald Trump, Deborah Burks, and Anthony Fauci spoke at a White House press conference for the first time about nationwide lockdowns. They handed out a sheet of paper. It mostly consisted of conventional health advice that said in tiny print, bars, restaurants, food courts, gyms, and other indoor and outdoor venues where groups of people congregate should be closed. So shut it all down. Everything, everyone. As if the whole economy were a nightclub closing early. Now this amounted to a full repudiation of not only the United States Constitution, but also freedom itself. At the very least, it was a fundamental attack on the First Amendment guarantees the freedom of religion because it attacked the rights of Christians, Jews, Muslims, everybody. All evidence suggests that Donald Trump did not know that the tiny text was on that handout, on that piece of paper. The reading of the text was left to the question and answer session. Even when it was read by Fauci from the podium, Trump seemed to be distracted by something else, almost as if he did not hear or did not want to hear it. Later, he bragged that the whole thing was his doing, but looking back at the history of that day, it's not so clear. So let's take this apart frame by frame to understand what happened in these 70 seconds as part of the Q&A session. A reporter starts by asking whether the federal government is telling people to avoid restaurants and bars or if the government is saying that bars and restaurants should shut down over the next 15 days. Both Fauci and Burks knew for sure that the guidelines were calling for them to shut down. After a long and tedious press conference about not much, following a very precise question, Trump turns to Fauci to have him answer. This might be because he wasn't listening carefully and did not know how to respond. Fauci then motions to Deborah Burks, who rises to the podium. Fauci probably believed that she would be the one to do the dirty work of announcing the lockdowns. Fauci is clearly egging her on. Now is your time. Burks begins her answer with a strategic deflection, speaking tendentiously about how long the virus lives on surfaces. It was nothing but smokescreen, and there's every reason to believe that she knew it. She pointedly was not answering the question. She chickened out at the last moment. A possibly frustrated Fauci interrupts her with a hand signal from the side. Burks immediately realizes what he was going to do. He was going to read the order that Trump did not know was there. So she decides to pass the buck. 
She gets giddy and silly with excitement, adrenaline flowing. She starts stumbling around with her words and says in a fake girlish way that she will let Fauci speak because he is her mentor. This was her way of saying that she would gladly pass this hot potato on to him. She likely knew that this was the great moment they had all been waiting for. She was mad with excitement. Oddly enough, Trump was smiling too, but possibly because of her antics, not because of what was about to happen. Fauci then steps up to the microphone. He does not personally call for lockdowns. Instead, he reads the guidance word for word. He says, the small print here, it's really small print. In states with evidence of community transmission, bars, restaurants, food courts, gyms, and other indoor and outdoor venues where groups of people congregate should be closed. As he reads this, Burks herself is smiling from ear to ear as if the words were poetry to her. It was not an unfamiliar text. She had been working on these words the entire weekend. Finally, all her work had come to fruition. Even better, she didn't have to read it. Fauci read it. Now, what was Donald Trump doing during this time? He got distracted by someone in the audience who got his attention. He smiles and points a finger. One wonders who and why. And there's a screenshot showing what's going on there. Was someone assigned to do the job of distracting President Trump? One cannot rule this out. This was the most significant moment of all. The big reveal had come, and Trump's attention was clearly elsewhere. To whom was he pointing and smiling? Was he just pretending not to hear? Who can say? Fauci reads the text, and then he steps away from the microphone. He had just read what is, in fact, the most totalitarian instruction ever given by any government in the history of the world. I can't think of another case of such a thing that all human interaction must stop from sea to shining sea. After all, all congregate places include homes, too. Then Fauci steps away from the microphone. Trump then comes back to the podium. He briefly rolls his eyes as if to say, there he goes again, but without a conception of what was just read or what it meant. At this point, what happens? Burks is gleaming, internally cheering. The deed has been done. It's over. They worked for many weeks to pull off this caper, and in an instant, it was done. Notice here that Fauci catches Burks's eye and gives a little nod. She smiles back. They were giving visual affirmations to each other behind Trump's back. It was then that Trump clarified that he is not telling anyone or anything to shut down, but this statement contradicts what was just read by Fauci just a few seconds ago. Here's how the exchange goes. Reporter. So, Mr. President, are you telling governors in those states then to close all their restaurants and their bars? Trump. Well, we haven't said that yet. Reporter. Why not? Trump. We're recommending, but reporter. But if you think this would work, Trump. 
We're recommending things. No, we haven't gone to that step yet. That could happen, but we haven't gone there yet. This was another strange moment because Trump explicitly contradicted the words that had just been read by Anthony Fauci. The paper reporters were looking at was clearly a lockdown order. Any astute reporter would have seen the huge chasm separating the edict from Trump's own words or understanding. Now, we're going to play the whole 70 seconds. But he says, deconstruct it yourself. See what you think. It was momentous, probably the most significant in American history, the culmination of weeks of persuasion and planning. Everything followed from that brief moment. Lockdown chaos, the closed schools and churches, the end of basic rights, the wrecking of business, and then began the spending, inflating, mad welfare checks, and the demoralization of the population that continues to this day. The population now subjected to shock and awe, the mask and vaccine mandates seemed minor by comparison. All of it unfolded in 70 seconds on March 16, 2020. So far as I know, this is the first and only article written so far to reconstruct this brief moment in time. Now, let me play for you what he's talking about. And I wish you could see Donald Trump being distracted by somebody in the audience while Fauci is reading this thing. The question about the sort of underlying public health strategy behind some of these guidelines, telling people to avoid restaurants and bars is a different thing than saying that bars and restaurants should shut down over the next 15 days. So why was it seen as being imprudent or not, not necessary to take that additional step and offer that additional guidance? Well, I think we have to say the data that has been coming out, and I'm sure you're all up to the date, up to date on how long the virus lives on hard surfaces. And that has been our concern concern over the last two weeks. No, I'm sorry. Go okay. Good. I just wanted to re- re- read. There's, a, there's, a, there's an answer to this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Tony. He was my mentor, so I'm going to have to let him speak. The small print here, it's really small print. In states with evidence of community transmission, bars, restaurants, food courts, gyms, and other indoor and outdoor venues where groups of people congregate should be closed. So, Mr. President, are you telling governors in those states then to close all their restaurants? Well, we haven't said that yet. Why we're not? recommending, but, but we're recommending things. No, we haven't gone to that step yet. That could happen, but we haven't gone there yet, please. But Fauci just said it. Trump was clearly distracted. He's totally contradicting what Fauci just said. By saying we haven't said that yet, we haven't gone to that yet. Fauci just said it. So why are we not supposed to think that somebody was appointed to distract him? Well, Fauci was saying it. Why was it in such small letters on the handout? That's a great Jeffrey A. Tucker, founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. Also senior economics columnist for the Epic Times, author of 10 books, including Liberty or Lockdown. Article over at brownstone.org from October 2nd, 2022. The 70 seconds that shook the world. All right, next, January 1st. 2023, Jeffrey A. Tucker, brownstone.org, article entitled 
Fauci fibbed on the day everything changed. Again, this remind you of Mohammed Atta? Just be quiet. Stay in your seat. You'll be fine. Anthony Fauci's finally gone from his government perch, Jeffrey Tucker wrote on January 1st of this year. He says, let us recall that it was he who set this calamity in motion, squandering his credibility while taking down public health and much else with it more than anyone. He bears responsibility even if he was acting on others' behalf. That is especially true if he was carrying out a hidden agenda. Take your pick of theories. Now, again, again, I think Burks was just as culpable, just as guilty as he was. But anyway, Jeffrey A. Tucker continues, there was already growing political and societal panic on March 11, 2020, when the House Oversight and Reform Committee convened a hearing on the new virus circulating. Fauci was the key witness. The only question on everyone's mind came down to the most primal fear, am I going to die from this thing like in the movies? This was one day before Trump's announcement of the travel ban from Europe, the U.K., and Australia, essentially sealing the borders of the United States to an extent never before attempted, thus separating families and loved ones and trapping billions of people in their nation-states. It was five days before the evil declaration by all health authorities to immediately shut down all places where people could congregate. These few days will remain a case study in irrationality and crowd madness. Fauci, on the day of his testimony, however, seemed like a paragon of stability. He was calm and clear, nearly bloodless in his tone. The substance of what he said at the same time was clearly designed to generate panic and create the conditions for a full lockdown. He had the countenance of a doctor who was telling the family that a beloved father was terminally ill with 30 days to live. In particular, and in contrast to the testimony prepared by the CDC and NIH, Fauci spoke to the severity of the virus. To the average member of Congress, The answer here was crucial because it addressed the only two serious issues. Am I going to die? And will I be blamed and politically punished if my constituents die? To this, Fauci responded with what seemed like science but was actually completely wrong, dreadfully wrong, catastrophically wrong. He claimed that we knew for sure that at best, COVID was 10 times deadlier than the flu. In fact, he threw around so much data confetti that a person could have easily believed that he was downplaying the severity to promote calm. His intention was the opposite. Here is what he said, and please listen carefully to catch the implications. Quoting now, SARS was also a coronavirus in 2002. It infected 8,000 people, and it killed about 775. It had a mortality of around 9 to 10%. So that is only 8,000 people in about a year. In the two and a half months that we have had this coronavirus, as you know, we now have multiple multiples of that. So it clearly is not as lethal 
and I will get to the lethality in a moment, but it certainly spreads better. Probably for the practical understanding of the American people, the seasonal flu that we deal with every year has a mortality of 0.1%. The stated mortality over all of this, when you look at all the data, including China, is about 3%. It first started off as 2 and now 3 I think if you count all the cases of minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic infection, that probably brings the mortality rate down to somewhere around 1%, which means it is 10 times more lethal than the seasonal flu. I think that is something that people can get their arms around and understand. I think the gauge is that this is a really serious problem that we have to take seriously. I mean, People always say, well, the flu, you know, the flu does this, the flu does that. The flu has a mortality of 0.1%. This has mortality of 10 times that, and that is the reason why I want to emphasize we have to stay ahead of the game in preventing this. Now, Jeffrey A. Tucker says, just think through the flim-flam here. He begins with a figure of a 10% case fatality rate, from a similar virus. The thinking in the room is already stuck on 10. Then he says this virus has killed more in a shorter period of time, which implies more severity. He quickly dials that back, but warns that this is more easily spread, which suggests that perhaps it is even higher. Then he dials that back and says that so far the mortality rate is 3%. But then he quickly adds in minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic infection, and comes to a rough number of 1%, thus failing completely here to distinguish between cases and infections, which used to be a core metric that he and so many others completely obliterated. That's a side point, but an important one. The distinction between cases and infections has been crushed, leaving us utter data chaos. Fauci spoke this final number, with so many other numbers before it that no one could figure out which way was up. The main takeaway anyone would have is that there is going to be vast bloodshed. It's best to watch this. You can almost feel the fear in the room as he blinds these political critters with fake science. Okay, so I'll play it for you. Here we go. He's talking to uh, Congressman Michael Cloud out of the, uh, I think, the 27th District U.S. House out of Texas. Harrison, briefly explain what's, how does COVID-19 compare to other previous health situations, SARS, H1N1, uh, things okay. like that? Sure, sir. Thank you for the question. Uh, well, SARS was also a coronavirus in 2002. It infected 8,000 people. And it killed about 775. It had a mortality of about 9 to 10%. So that's only 8,000 people. In about a year, in the two and a half months that we've had this coronavirus, as you know, we now have multiple multiples of that. So it clearly is not as lethal. And I'll get to the lethality in a moment. But it certainly spreads better. Probably for the practical understanding of the American people, The seasonal flu that we deal with every year has a mortality of 0.1%. The stated mortality overall 
of this, when you look at all the data, including China, is about 3%. It first started off as 2 and now 3 I think if you count all the cases of minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic infection, that probably brings the mortality rate down to somewhere around 1%, which means it is 10 times more lethal than the seasonal flu. I think that's something that people can get their arms around and understand. About less lethal than than N1H1 or SARS? No, absolutely not. H1N1 is even, the 2009 pandemic of H1N1 was even less lethal than the, than the regular seasonal flu. It was a yeah, pandemic. I, I'm trying to help the American people know where to appropriately set their gauge. I think you set the gauge is that this is a really serious problem that we have to take seriously. I mean, people always say, well, the flu, you know, the flu does this, the flu does that. The flu has a mortality of 0.1%. Sure. This has a mortality of 10 times that. Okay. And that's the reason why I want to emphasize we have to stay ahead of the game in preventing this. Okay. Did you uh did you get all that? So Jeffrey A. Tucker's article at Brownstone.org says, So what do we do? Fauci here was quick with the answer. He said, how much worse it will get will depend on our ability to do two things, to contain the influx in people who are infected coming from the outside and the ability to contain and mitigate within our own country. In other words, lockdown. That Thus was the stage set five days before the announcement of 15 days to slow the spread. To be sure, There is some mental connection between severity and policy response, but there probably should not be. Even if this virus had a 10% fatality rate, what does locking down achieve? It was never even clear what the point was. The spread could not be stopped forever. The hospitals were not really overcrowded, as we have seen. There was never a chance for zero covid as a catastrophic experience of China and New Zealand has shown. In the end, the pandemic of a respiratory virus is solved through exposure, upgraded immune systems, and herd immunity, regardless of severity. And again, please recall that biological evolution has made such pandemics self-limiting. There is a trade between severity and prevalence subject to latency. Latency here was never a factor, contrary to the lies in the early weeks. So the more infectious this virus would be, the less severe it would be, nearly by definition. Fauci could have used his time in Congress to give a basic explanation, but he did not. He chose to spread irrational fear instead. So how can we evaluate Fauci's murky suggestion that SARS-CoV-2 will have a 1% fatality rate? What actually happened? Well, these data are pretty settled by now. And he links to the article over at ScienceDirect.com. Fatality rate for people 0 to 19 years old? 0.0003%. Fatality rate for people 20 to 29 years old? 0.002%. Fatality for people 40 to 49 years old, 
0.035%. Fatality rate for people 50 to 59 years old, 0.123%, like the flu. About the same fatality rate for the flu. Fatality rate for people 60 to 69 years old, 0.506%. Same fatality rate for a bad flu. Now, let's just assume that Fauci is correct about the flu, though there is plenty of controversy about his chosen figure of 0.1%. If he's right about, for the most affected demographic from COVID, he was off by two times. For youth, he was off by 3,333 times, an exaggeration of more than 300,000%. And he did it with a straight face. Again, Keep quiet, stay in your seat, everything will be fine, you'll be okay. But I digress. The rest of the population falls between there for a total of 0.095%. So in general, for the whole population, he was off by 10 times, meaning that the actual infection fatality rate is just slightly less, if this is right, than the seasonal flu. Throughout the entire pandemic, from the beginning to now, the average age of the 0.09% of infected people who died remained at the median age of death in absence of the pandemic. If this same virus arrived decades early, it would have hardly been noticed at all. Which is to say, Fauci was correct on February 28, 2020, when he wrote that this is more or less the flu, except with a large age gradient. His change of mind in the course of two weeks prior to this testimony is based on absolutely no evidence. What changed was his tactics, but why? We mapped out many times already that there was plenty of information available, even in the popular press, that this bug would be more or less like the flu, except with an extreme age gradient, which we knew already by mid-February. All the misinformation that followed was just that, and they knew it. Certainly Fauci knew it, no doubt about it. So, why? Here we get into interesting theorizing. Brownstone Institute has done a lot of this for the better part of 18 months, and we will continue to do so. We can talk all evening about this. We already do, and we continue to collect evidence, too. The point is that this world is not the same. Fauci pulled the lever on the wall that set this in motion. He never should have been given that deference, that power, that influence. There should have been a check on him, and some people tried, but the censors then flew into action. The entire mess began not just with a bad prediction, but an outrageously bad falsehood, spoken in front of deeply ignorant and terrified politicians one that was followed by an egregious demand that we get rid of normal social and market functioning. The consequences are for the ages. Fauci had his own masters and minions, but it is impossible to avoid the reality that he bears primary responsibility as a voice of panic that shut down freedoms hard won over a millennium. That is Jeffrey A. Tucker over the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org, the article entitled, Fauci fibbed on the day everything changed. Brownstone.org, Jeffrey A. Tucker, January 1st, 2023. The only thing I would quibble with here, 
is that technically, officially, Dr. Deborah Burks was in charge of the White House's COVID response. Other than that, I agree with every word, every word. Okay, now, the question is, again, Jeffrey A. Tucker at brownstone.org, an article that just dropped on March 14, 2023, entitled, Was Trump Tricked into Lockdowns or Not? Hey, everybody listening on the live stream, um, Podbean usually cuts us off right around uh, two hours or so. So I apologize for that, but when I upload it, everything, the whole rest of the show will be on the uh, on the podcast. So I appreciate you all listening to, to the live stream, and sorry that uh, Podbean cuts us off around somewhere around two hours, maybe two or three minutes later, something like that. Sorry about that, y'all. Appreciate y'all. All right, let me get back to this, and, and thank you. And the article begins, There are enduring mysteries surrounding the White House decision to issue a lockdown edict on March 16, 2020. The edict has no precedent in the history of governance. Indoor and outdoor venues where groups of people congregate should be closed. The Bill of Rights was right out the window on the order of one man and for a virus. We have a number of sources now from journalistic ones informed by people who were there the weekend of March 14th and 15th and also firsthand accounts as well. The sources are these books. Silent Invasion by Deborah Burks. Breaking History by Jared Kushner. Nightmare Scenario by Washington Post reporters Yasmin Abudaleb and Damian Paletta. So Help Me God by Mike Pence. And last but not least, Premonition by Michael Lewis. Now, each one of these books valorizes the decision to lock down an opinion increasingly deprecated. Indeed, it is hard to find public intellectuals or health officials today who defend lockdowns at all, especially in light of the catastrophic consequences and no obvious advantage. For sure, there are those who still have every intention to do it all over again, such as the World Health Organization. The absence of apologies is conspicuous. Still, it's hard to find a fan of lockdowns these days willing to stick their necks out. Donald Trump, of course, spent two years defending the decision. These days, he seems to be backing off the old line. More and more, he and those behind him are claiming that he, quote, left it to the states, unquote. That claim is a legal truism in the sense that under the American system, the states are in a position to reject edicts from the White House. South Dakota did reject that edict, a fact which proves that it was possible to defy the White House. At the same time, the White House did everything possible to make sure that everyone complied, from phone calls to outright threats and bribes. To lock down was the easy decision for both blue and red states. Fear was in the air, and people in media were clamoring for lockdowns. To what extent is Donald Trump personally culpable? Can we really say that he was an innocent victim of bad advice? Now, we know for sure that Trump praised 
China's response to the virus as early as January 24th, 2020, so he was already primed for this decision. And they have the um, his January 24th, 2020 tweet embedded in the article here. On March 9th, 2020, Trump still believed that the virus was manageable without extreme measures. And they have that tweet embedded in the article. Only three days later, he shut down travel from Europe, UK, and Australia. The next day, national security took over his policy lead. That is a crucial sentence. The next day, national security took over as policy lead. And that is how you got Dr. Deborah Burks. I don't have time to get into it too much right now. But again, episode 194 and 196 of the Doc Washburn Show. By the following Monday, he issued the nationwide shutdown order. It was a dramatic turnabout in a week's time. He was very proud of his actions and bragged about them constantly. And here is an embedded tweet from March 27, 2020, embedded in the article in which Donald Trump says, we are marshalling the full power of government and society to achieve victory over the virus. Together we will endure, we will prevail, and we will win! Exclamation mark. Hashtag CARES Act. He told everyone affected by what he called necessary containment policies, that they will be getting money. An embedded tweet from Donald Trump, March 18th, 2020, which says, For the people that are now out of work because of the important and necessary containment policies, for instance, the shutting down of hotels, bars, and restaurants, money will soon be coming to you. The onslaught of the China virus is not your fault. will be stronger than ever. Trump also later condemned Sweden for not locking down. Here's an embedded tweet from Donald Trump. April 30th, 2020, he says, Despite reports to the contrary, Sweden is paying heavily for its decision not to lock down. As of today, 2,462 people have died there, a much higher number than the neighboring countries of Norway, 207, Finland, 206, or Denmark, 443. The United States made the correct decision! Exclamation mark. Trump further insisted that it is not up to the states to decide when to open. He insisted it was up to him alone. And he said this not two weeks after lockdown, but a full month after lockdown. April 13th, 2020. Here's the tweet from Donald Trump. For the purpose of creating conflict and confusion, some of the fake news media are saying that it is the governor's decision to open up the states, not that of the president of the United States and the federal government. Let it be fully understood that this is incorrect. We know for sure that the decision to lock down took place March 14th and 15th, 2020, on a weekend inside the White House. Present with Trump were Dr. Burks, Jerry Kushner, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Mike Pence. Scott Gottlieb of Pfizer was on the phone, plus two of Jerry Kushner's friends from the information tech industry, Nat Turner and Adam Bowler. So far as we know, that's it. Those are the people who, on their own, but probably not, decided to conduct history's most ambitious science experiment. The story as we know it goes like this. There was a virus circulating around, and the main goal in public health was to minimize cases. In retrospect, 
This was the disastrous presumption because this was not AIDS and not Ebola, but a respiratory virus that everyone on the planet Earth would get several times. It was destined to become part of the world of pathogens we inhabit along with trillions of others. Our immune systems would need an upgrade as they always have. That goal of minimization or or even elimination was the unquestioned presumption going into this weekend three years ago. The little junta of fools gathered around Trump explained that the reduction of cases was a desiderata on which he should be focused. Xi Jinping locked down and defeated the bug. Trump was at least as good and wonderful as the head of China, so he should do the same thing, or so he believed, or so he was convinced. Trump, known to be a germaphobe and believing strongly in his own prowess, agreed and bought the idea that he could shut down society for two weeks and then turn it on again. His advisors convinced him that this is the right and brave decision to make, after which he would be celebrated as a great hero. There is every evidence that he believed this. At his March 16th press conference, Trump said, If everyone makes this change or these critical changes and sacrifices now, we will rally together as one nation and we will defeat the virus and we're going to have a big celebration together. That perfectly positioned his advisors to come back in two weeks with good news and bad news. The good news is that we are making progress. The bad news is that if he opens now, cases will go up and that will make him a liar. That's why we need another 30 days, they told him. He approved that, and so on it went until the vaccine was made available. In the meantime, Trump himself lost control and was eventually booted from office. In this scenario, Trump is the dupe, a man convinced to destroy the America that he had promised to make great. Instead, he wrecked it. The fault lies entirely with the bad advisors, Fauci, Burks, Kushner, Pence, and Gottlieb. And that is a compelling version of events. Trump was tricked. That version of events, essentially confirmed by all accounts we have, offers an out for Trump. Maybe. After all, if he really is that gullible, does he not bear at least some responsibility for the decision? I must say that this is the version of events I have long accepted, but actually, as I think about it, this story is self-aggrandizing for the tellers. To say, I convinced the president to shut down the economy is quite the commentary on their own awesomeness and persuasive power. What if the real story is slightly different? What if Trump himself was as gung-ho for lockdowns as anyone else in the room? What if he didn't really need convincing, but rather was happy to let others take the so-called credit for having convinced him? He is nothing if not a great salesman. How do we know for sure that Trump was not selling his advisors rather than the reverse? We do not actually know that. The most plausible scenario is that everyone in that hothouse of Oval Office power pretension was equally enthusiastic for the most catastrophic public health decision in modern history. If this alternative scenario is true, we have another layer of problems on our hands. If the whole thing was accomplished by Trump himself and honest people 
have to admit that this is possible. The scenario in the Oval Office in those fateful days changes rather dramatically. It remains a possibility that Trump himself, not Fauci, Burks, Kushner, Pence, or Gottlieb, deserves the main blame for what happened to American rights and liberties. And this blame is deserved not because he was duped, but because he was in on it, having changed his mind at some point between March 9th and March 12th. I'm sad to say that there seems to be no evidence to contradict this alternative scenario. And while it is true that the decision doomed his presidency, that does not necessarily mean that he didn't share enthusiasm for it at the time. And if that is true, we have a completely different scenario on our hands. If we had some serious journalists with access to him, this is the question they would ask. Who got to you to cause from you dismissing the virus on March 9th to just one week later, issuing the most extreme edict in American history that disregarded all rights and liberties? Surely he knows the answer. Wow. That is Jeffrey A. Tucker, the Brownstone Institute, over brownstone.org, article which came out just the other day, March 14, 2023, entitled, Was Trump Tricked into Lockdowns or Not? Okay, last but not least, a short article from Mark Oshinsky at brownstone.org. Mark Oshinsky is an attorney who writes for Brownstone. Articles entitled, A Brief History of Stolen Lives. He says, on the third anniversary of the worst exercise of public policy in American history, and while most people would now like to forget the pandemic response so they can act as if they weren't accomplices to it, I present the following concise retrospective. Scientifically illiterate, germaphobic Trump panicked while the Democrats and a complicit media used phony statistics and hospital videos to scare people. Although perhaps no healthy people under 70 died of COVID, and nearly all those infected and over 70 survived, many people believed the virus was a universal lethal threat. The vast majority of those said to have died from a virus really died of old age, non-COVID illnesses, medical errors, or despair born of isolation. So-called experts prescribed stay-at-home orders, leaky masks, and wildly inaccurate tests. These were political theater that predictably failed and caused much harm, as if to mock people's gullibility. Governments also promoted a series of corny but widely embraced and invoked slogans and decreed a long list of absurd rules such as one-way walking in stores and masking in restaurants until food arrives. Most schools were closed for 18 months. The laptop class willingly sacrificed the young by stealing irreplaceable experiences and social development time from them. Churches, too, were shut down for two holiday seasons. Federal and state governments spent multiple trillions of dollars on worthless measures and caused massive inflation, which is causing additional lasting economic, financial, and social problems. Though unneeded, the government paid tens of billions of dollars to develop, buy, and promote so-called vaccines. 
the president and many so-called experts confidently asserted that the shots would stop infection and spread. Tens of millions of people were unconstitutionally required to inject. Though pharma mega-profited, the shots failed, facilitated an infection, and caused many injuries and deaths. Media, big tech, and the government actively censored those who sought to tell the truth about all of the foregoing. Brother stood against brother, sister stood against sister, and friend against ex-friend. Throughout, many Americans displayed profound deficits of knowledge and logic. They foolishly believed that by hiding from each other, humans could make a respiratory virus vanish into the ether. Very few who aggressively supported the futile, destructive, so-called mitigation measures have admitted that they have been wrong throughout. The few who have belatedly admitted this absolve themselves by falsely insisting they couldn't have known that these interventions would cause serious, lasting damage. No, couldn't have known. How could they have known, right? Now, I mentioned that Anthony Fauci told Rand Paul under oath that he didn't have to tell him how much money and royalties he personally received from Big Pharma. Speaking of which, on Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023, Senator Paul grilled the CEO of Moderna, a guy named Stefan Mansell, about the $400 million in royalties that Moderna recently paid the NIH. I wonder how much of that wound up in Dr. Fauci's bank account. He says he doesn't have to tell us, right? Okay, so here is Rand Paul. Mr. Vansell, uh, Moderna recently paid NIH $400 million. Do you believe it creates a conflict of interest for the government employees who are making money now off of the vaccine to also be dictating the policy about how many times we have to take the vaccine? Next, Moderna CEO Stefan Mansell answers in English, but with a heavy French accent. So, I have transcribed it for you. And, of course, we pass the savings along to you. Good morning, Senator. Uh, indeed, we recently made, a, before Christmas last year, a $400 million payment to the NIH for uh, an old patent that they had developed, not related to COVID, but useful in the development of a COVID vaccine uh, to, to prevent for their work. Uh, it's for the U.S. government to assess how that money should be used. Okay, now... Don't you wish that billionaires with heavy accents would at least have the decency to speak slowly on the off chance we might be able to understand them? Okay, here's what the uh, CEO of Moderna said. Good morning, Senator. We recently made, before Christmas last year, a $400 million payment to the NIH for an old patent they had developed not related to COVID, but useful in the development of the COVID vaccine. Then he apparently said either to prevent for their work or to prevent further work, neither of which makes sense. Then he said it's for the U.S. government to assess how that money is used. So, since the Moderna CEO 
just ignored Senator Paul's question, well, he asks it again. I think it creates a conflict of interest for the same people deciding the policy of how often we have to take the vaccine to also be making money the more times we take the vaccine. Yes or no? And the Moderna CEO repeats his non-response. This is for the government to decide. Yeah, he talks too fast. This is for the government to decide. It's what he says. So before moving on to other questions, Senator Paul notes the absurdity of the Moderna CEO's answer. You have no opinion on whether or not it creates a conflict of interest. Now on to the tough questions. Here's one that Mohammed Atta, I mean uh, Anthony Fauci, couldn't care less about. Let's see what the Moderna CEO does with this one. Is there a higher incidence of myocarditis among adolescent males 16 to 24 after taking your vaccine? Now, you know, this is a very important question because myocarditis can actually kill people. I wonder if that football player, DeMar Hamlin, Buffalo Bills, got the Moderna vaccine. You know, the the one who dropped dead last fall on Monday Night Football and they did CPR on him for nine minutes and they had to hit him with a defibrillator twice and grown men, big, strong football players, had towels over their face, sobbing openly because their friend was dead. And miraculously, the paramedics were able to revive him. Anyway, 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 that one. Anyway, here is the response from Moderna's CEO. So thank you for the question, Senator. First, let me say we care deeply about safety, and we're working closely with the CDC and the FDA. Now, you see, that's not what Rand Paul is looking for, okay? He's not looking for deflection. He interrupts the Moderna CEO because what he wants is an actual answer to the question. Pretty much a yes or no. Is there a higher incidence of myocarditis among boys 16 to 24 after they take your vaccine? Okay, so the Moderna CEO is outmatched, and I will translate for you his response. The data have shown, actually, I've seen, sorry, from the CDC, actually shown that there's less uh, myocarditis for people who get the vaccine versus who get COVID infection. All right, so what he said is, the data have shown, actually, I've seen, sorry, from the CDC, actually shown that there's less myocarditis for people who get the vaccine versus people who get the COVID infection. So, Rand Paul wants to make sure that he heard what he thought he heard. You're you're saying that for ages 16 to 24 among males who take the COVID vaccine, their risk of myocarditis is less than people who get the disease. Okay. So Moderna CEO, Stefan Mansell, attempts to defend the indefensible, but Senator Paul can only take so much and interrupts him. That is my understanding. That is not true. And I'd like to enter into the record six peer-reviewed papers from the Journal of Vaccine, the Annals of Medicine, that say the complete opposite of what you say. I also spoke with your president just last week, and he readily acknowledged in private that, yes, there is an increased risk of myocarditis. The fact that you can't say it in public is quite disturbing. Now, that is quite disturbing. I mean, 
that is very troubling, as a matter of fact. Rand Paul is not going to let up. It's about to get real up in here, y'all. I'm not even alive, fam. Check it out. Do you think it's scientifically sound to mandate three vaccines for adolescent boys? This is for the public health leaders to decide. You've been advocating for it. You've been interviewed and you've been advocating for boosters. Do you know when the myocarditis is most common among these adolescent boys after the second dose? When I spoke with your president, he readily acknowledged in private, yeah, that maybe there ought to be a discussion whether we ought to have one vaccine versus two versus three. If 90% of the myocarditis comes after the second dose, why don't we have a rational discussion about one? Marty McCary, a physician from Johns Hopkins, is said exactly the same thing. It's been discussed, and yet we have this ridiculous notion from the CDC. So the CDC says, and I'll ask you this question. Let's start it as a question. Your 16-year-old's had COVID. Your 16-year-old gets better and now has recovered from COVID. You vaccinate them, and they get myocarditis. Are you going to give them two more vaccines? Your child, give them two more vaccines? I'm not a clinician. I will have to discuss. You have children. I do. Have you vaccinated your children? I have. How many times? Three or four times. Three or four times. All right. Do you know what just happened there? Let me explain this. I mean, you might, but just in case. Senator Rand Paul just chuckled at the Moderna CEO's answer because he's clearly lying. There was a pregnant pause of several seconds as he tried to figure out how to answer Rand Paul's question because, of course, he hasn't vaccinated his own kids. And then to say three or four times as if he wouldn't know whether it was three or four, which number was correct. This is totally ludicrous. There's no other word for it. So the CDC recommends this, and, you know, you're obviously someone who's self-interested in the outcome here. But the CDC says that if your 15-, 16-year-old gets COVID, recovers, takes a vaccine, and gets myocarditis, is hospitalized with elevated heart enzymes, and is very sick, the CDC says as soon as he gets better, vaccinate him again. You know how many American parents think that that's a rational, reasonable thing to do? Do you know how many countries don't do this for children? Uh, Sweden doesn't offer the vaccine for kids under 12 unless they're at risk for severe disease. And I agree with that. I'm not saying never on any of this. I think it's a very reasonable position to say kids at risk or have some diseases that there may be a reason for vaccinating some children. Finland doesn't recommend it for under 12. Norway also. England as well. France, Poland, Germany, Switzerland, and all vaccinate 12 and up. So we got half the world who have looked at these studies. There's a study in Israel of thousands of patients, and yet you sit here and act as if you've never heard of myocarditis and you don't think it's an increased risk for young adolescent males when all of the studies who isolate out people by age have found that yes there's an increased risk after taking your vaccine Pfizer too but worse with Moderna wow so how do you think the Moderna CEO possibly comes back from this Rand Paul clearly has him dead to rights. Well, he's going to try, but Senator Paul will only let him get away 
with so much. There's an increased risk, Senator. I was comparing it to somebody who gets COVID. Well, that's also not true either, but there's an increased risk of getting it. But even when they compare it to the disease, there are many papers out there that do show that there's more of a risk of myocarditis after vaccination. So you have to weigh the risk and balances. And you are right, you're going to make less money because you're going to try, and they're already trying, the CDC's got it on their schedule. They're going to try to force all the kids in America to do this through school. But guess what? Parents aren't going to do it. They've seen that COVID is not deadly in children and you're right it's become less deadly over time your market's going down so you aren't going to make as much money i'm all for you making money in an honest way but i don't like the idea that the people making the decisions in government are also receiving money and are now conflicted in their interest boom you're right you're not going to make as much money now this is hilarious and it is hilarious because the CEO of Moderna hasn't mentioned anything about money. But Rand Paul is sitting there basically saying, look, we both know what this is about, and it's all about the Benjamins. He's in his face saying, "This is you're just trying to make money off of the suffering of other people. So I think that I have presented a lot of evidence on this edition of the Doc Washburn Show to tie in Fauci and his ilk with Mohammed Atta, the 9-11 hijacker, and with the Tuskegee experiment. I have one more piece of evidence for you, and this is from the Federalist. Madeline Osborne from October 13th, 2021, and it is specifically about Fauci. She says it was reported earlier this year that the University of Pittsburgh used taxpayer funds, specifically grants from Dr. Anthony Fauci's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, to run barbaric experiments splicing lab rats with organs harvested from aborted children. In response, pro-life activists and elected officials have called for state and federal investigations into the university, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, NIAID, and the local Planned Parenthood, which supplies body pieces from aborted aborted babies for experiments. On Tuesday, again, that was October 2021, a panel hosted in Pittsburgh by the Pennsylvania Family Council featured several of these pro-life activists and former Pennsylvania elected officials. They discussed the shocking details that have emerged over the last several months and what we now know about the funding and sourcing of University of Pittsburgh's fetal tissue harvesting. The first panelist to speak was Center for Medical Progress founder David DeLayden, whose undercover videos have previously featured abortionists at Planned Parenthood of Western Pennsylvania and the abortion training director at the University of Pittsburgh. DeLayden explained how in grant applications to receive NIH funding, the University of Pittsburgh essentially advertised their facilities as the best location for the GUDMAP aborted fetal kidney harvesting program. Pitt described how aborted babies are still alive at the time their kidneys are cut out. This is a selling point for why Pitt should receive millions of taxpayer dollars. DeLayden read from the grant application, which said 
when they say they track and record the warm ischemia time, that means they know the time at which fetuses lose their circulation and lose their blood supply. They specifically say labor induction, not just a forceps extraction abortion, but a labor induction abortion when they induce labor and the mom pushes out a baby at 24 weeks. Now, those two statements together, that they know how to keep the time of blood loss in the kidneys to a minimum and that they perform induced labor abortion shows these are clear, classic cases of partial birth abortion, or this is just straight-up infanticide. This is what DeLayden is saying. He also explained how the fetal experimentation programs may have violated Pennsylvania state law and federal partial birth abortion law and how these potential criminal violations should be investigated by lawmakers. Pennsylvania's Abortion Control Act includes a felony prohibition on infanticide, a ban on any consideration whatsoever for fetal tissue, and a specific prohibition on any experimentation on a living fetus, whether inside or outside the womb. The fetal statute against partial birth abortion applies to delivering the baby alive for the purpose of killing the baby after delivery through organ harvesting or through other means. DeLayton says if they're maintaining blood flow to the kidneys, extracting the baby up to the level of the kidneys and then kill the baby, it's a clear pattern for criminal violation. Retired Pennsylvania Superior Court Judge Cheryl Allen spoke on Planned Parenthood's history of racism, the abortion industry's targeting of black people under the guise of wanting to help poor black women, and University of Pittsburgh's racial quota for the babies used in their experiments. You see, Pitt's grant application stated its fetal harvesting program would choose individuals on the basis of sex slash gender, race, and ethnicity, setting quotas of 50% white patients and aborted fetuses and 50% minority patients and fetuses, with 25% of those minority fetuses to come from black women. Allen pointed out that in western Pennsylvania, Compared to other metropolitan areas like Philadelphia or New York, there are smaller Hispanic and Asian populations, and so the largest minority population here would be African American. Therefore, Ms. Allen said she finds it's disingenuous to even suggest that black babies are less than 25% of the 50% minority patients and fetuses. The study's quotas could lead to abortion providers pushing women to have abortions depending on their race. That's what one panelist suggested. Allen said that's what putting profits before people does. Allen also pointed out the hypocrisy of the University of Pittsburgh, whose Office for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion issued an anti-racism statement claiming to eradicate all forms of racism and ethnic oppression while it still works with Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry which were founded to eliminate black people. Pro-life activist David DeLayden explained how in his initial reporting of publicly available documents, they concluded that researchers received $1.4 million from the NIH in grants. After reviewing subsequent grant applications from NIH obtained by Judicial Watch, however, we now know that NIH actually granted the University of Pittsburgh twice that amount, more than $3 million. In a House appropriations hearing in May, 
Anthony Fauci was asked about the NIAID's funding of pit experiments, grafting scalps from 18 to 20-week aborted fetuses onto rats, and if the agency is aware of where the fetuses come from, Fauci replied that the study went through all the appropriate guidelines and oversight. His words, not mine. Delayed and skewered Fauci's response is outrageous for two reasons. First, intact scalps used, which can be seen in pictures included in the study, are only obtainable at the size shown through a partial birth abortion. Intact heads will not be attainable through dismemberment abortions where the skull is going to be crushed, according to DeLayden. Second, in terms of what oversight is being done, it was recently reported that the vice chair of the University of Pittsburgh's Institutional Review Board, Dr. Beatrice Chen, is also the medical director of Planned Parenthood Western Pennsylvania and oversees Planned Parenthood's Abortion Training Fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh. The Layden said Dr. Chen is a supervising participant in every single field citation study that is approved at the University of Pittsburgh, so she's the one supposed to be in charge of making sure that the abortionists are not doing partial birth abortions, are not delivering infants alive, that they are taking them to the NICU to get medical care, and she's the person who's in charge of all the abortions. The panel discussion concluded with a call for more disclosure, more investigations, and more pressure on lawmakers and law enforcement to make sure, according to US, former U.S. House Representative Keith Roftus, not a single dime of federal taxpayer money or Pennsylvania taxpayer money goes to any institution that is promoting the destruction of life. At the end of September 2021, more than 100 U.S. congressmen and senators sent a letter to the heads of DOJ, NIH, and HHS demanding details and documentation on the federally sponsored experiments. The given deadline for their demands was Tuesday, October 12th. I bet they didn't get a response. So, Fauci defended, oh, and by the way, there's another article out there about the organ harvesting from aborted babies at the University of Pittsburgh that Fauci's agency paid for. And it said the babies are anywhere from six weeks to 42 weeks gestation. Well, as you know, uh, gestation only goes 40 weeks. So they're talking about harvesting organs from babies that are already born full term. And Fauci defended this. So that makes him just as bad as people like Mohammed Atta, Ramzi bin El-Shib, Osama bin Laden, Zarqawi, al-Baghdadi, any of them. He's a mass murderer. Makes him worse than the people who did the Tuskegee experiment. He's defending harvesting organs from live babies and killing them, doing that. Because, oh, you know, went through all the, 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 the proper oversight. I'll defend comparing him to Muhammad Atta and the Tuskegee Institute till the day I die. I'm never going to back down on that. Caught, say caught. Okay. Having said that, I think it's that time again. Hit it, Brian.
We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. And it's brought to you by Red River Auto. Big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice online the way you want to. Have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. Today's Tweet of the Day is brought to you by the FJC. Not sure what that stands for. And it says, Trump should stand up in front of the New York courthouse, surrounded by Secret Service, hands in the air, saying, hands up, don't shoot, and I can't breathe. That's today's Tweet of the Day, brought to you by Red River Auto. Okay, you've been listening to episode 362 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. If you have any questions, email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, Simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Sempier X, Senior Vice President, Engineering, IT, and Interoperability for the Doc Washburn Show. Brown, that's the way it is. Wednesday, March twenty second, 2023.